you know, there are people who think we're paid by Disney to shit on DC or whatever. Do people actually think that? Oh, that people on Twitter uh, that think we are specifically not us specifically, but like critics. We're getting my hopes up. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you live in San Diego, California. Cassidy Robinson, you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And today we're going to be celebrating whatever's left of the DCEU with the release of the Flash movie. Uh, which we watched in theaters. Uh, mm-hmm. You kind of a while back. You saw like a test screening or something like yeah, that, correct? Yeah, it was a it was a sneak preview screening, and so uh, technically, they did say that technically what we saw was an unfinished version of the movie. But I really, other than the fact that it, I. I no, it didn't have like the credits or the end credit like stinger. But other than that, I I don't think I was missing anything because I I like kind of read stuff online. Sure. And if there's you have any questions as to what might have not been the same, you can ask me because I just watched it yesterday. So yeah, yeah. And if there's any any differences, I guess we'll uh, figure it out. But I I really think we saw a, a mostly finished cut. Yeah, because it was only like a a week or so before it was officially released. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, be talking about the movie Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. Your streaming homework to me. Yes. Mm-hmm. We watched it on Tubi, um, which is vaguely related to DC and DC Comics because it's about the creator of Wonder Woman. Oh, I thought you were saying Tubi was vaguely related. Uh, yes, no, this this movie, this story is uh, Professor Marston uh, is about, yeah, the creator of the comic book character Wonder Woman. Oh, well, we'll get into all of that. All right, let's go ahead and get started with, uh, we'll, we'll start with our review of The Flash. I guess I'll set this up since I've seen it most recently. Okay. So the Flash, the Barry Allen character in his own film. We've seen him previously in the Justice League movies, both cuts of the Justice League movie, whatever. And he's popped up here and there in other DCEU films. But this is the first time he's gotten his own movie and then ends up sharing most of it with other DC characters. <laughs> but essentially he figures out a way through his his uh speed powers that he's able to sort of vibrate through time. He's able mm-hmm. to sort of find a a space-time continuum where he can actually travel back and forth and he 
wants to save the life of his mother who died when he was very young and set his life on course where his father, played by Ron Livingston, uh, is in jail and it doesn't look like he's going to be able to get out anytime soon. So he kind of wants to make the make things right. And he figures, you know, what's the worst that could happen? All, all I have to do is make sure that my mom gets the can of tomatoes she was supposed to get that morning, and that would prevent every everything from happening. Well, when he goes and he does this, he creates a time paradox where he sees another version of himself that's a handful of years younger than him, uh, right before he got his powers. It kind of creates a Back to the Future 2 sort of scenario where him and his younger version, he has to, now he has to sort of fix everything he fucked up going back in time. So he has to make sure that he still gets his powers, or else General Zod, we saw in Man of Steel, going to wreak havoc, and, you know, he starts to encounter all these other places in time and history within you know, these key moments of the DCEU up to this point where, uh, you know, fixing one problem then goes to another, to another, to another, uh, while creating problems along the way and creating more and more paradoxes. And, you know, along the way, we, we see other characters from the from DC or a version of it. Uh, we start to learn that more even more so than just uh, uh, paradoxes, he's also creating parallel universes or visiting parallel universes where characters are similar but not the same. Uh, one key difference is we run into Batman. This is in all the trailers, so this is not a spoiler. But the Batman that he visits is quite a bit older, and he's the Michael Keaton Batman from the Tim Burton films. And... Instead of Superman, it's Supergirl and, you know, problems along the way. And uh, also, this is Flash as played by Ezra Miller off of a two-year spiral where Ezra... The controversy tour. Yes, where every week Ezra Miller was wilding out doing something crazy, you know... uh, kidnapping fans and um <laughs> having a, a cult ranch in hawaii or some shit i he yeah like, yeah i don't I, you can look it all up it's all googleable um i do want to just point out real quick uh before we get too far into this that ezra miller does identify as non-binary um sure. so let's try to use they them pronouns when referring to the actor um uh, the character of Barry Allen, though, is he, him. We'll do just, our best. Just, yeah, that's all we can do. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah, so what did you think of The Flash, the movie? I found a lot of this frustrating. It eventually won me over toward the end when mm-hmm. it really started to get into the sci-fi of its world building, you know, when, it, when about the parallel realities and the uh, the infinite realities and the pasta realities, what have you. 
I thought I I would figure that's where it would lose you because literally on I maybe not our last episode, but two episodes ago, you were talking about how burnt out on multiverse you are. I am and and still am. But I think that that is still the stuff that this movie does the best. I also like, you know, the inclusion of Dark Flash, you know, some some Mm -hmm. really deep, nerdy DC stuff. There, there is a thing, and this is this is kind of a, a sidebar, but there is a thing that's kind of frustrating with me about the Flash that it always, like, you'd think that the only Flash story to ever be told was this sort of like Flashpoint multiverse type, you know, DC crisis story, um, because the, I mean, there is a comic book precedent for this. Yeah, um, the the Flash running so fast they break time is you know that's canonical they've done that in the comic books a few times but like you know there was fucking 60 years of him like fighting gorillas and bullshit in right. between that and and the flash i think of of all of the dc characters is one of the pulpier yeah and his 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 set of villains have always been sort of the goofiest he's always you know, he doesn't take himself too seriously. He, well, the, in, in a the, lot of ways, he's he's kind of the the uh, the Spider-Man of this universe. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the Flash, and certainly that's how the movie portrays him. And that, um, which you know, I guess Spider-Man is another like multiversal character. Sure. Um, so I, th- I think that comparison is very apt. And like, you know. Spider-Man is known for his rogues gallery as is Batman, as is the Flash. I think the Flash is up there. You know, there's Reverse Flash, there's Gorilla Grodd, there's Captain Cold, like very well known for his rogues gallery. Like they they refer to them as the rogues and there is, you know, the Flash kind of has his own version of the Sinister Six and, and, so to me, it is a little frustrating um, that out the gate, the first Flash movie we get has to be this sort of multiversal, all-encompassing, you know, diet Justice League. R- right. And and then that's really what it ends up becoming towards towards the middle of the movie once we add Batman, once we add Supergirl – once even, you know, the, the second Flash is added in, it becomes a team dynamic. It's no longer a singular personal story. It finds itself back to that at some point, mm-hmm. but it's, it spends a lot of time going from one mission to another to another. And, and I, I feel like it took a lot of inspiration, not just from all the multiverse movies that MCU have been putting out, but also, I saw a lot of parallels to Endgame, where in that film, they use time travel to go back to key moments of the movies mm-hmm. and uh, play certain scenes out again as, as sort of a way to reference back to the to the MCU as a whole. Sure. Uh, but, but I mean, you know, one key difference is the MCU had more than a decade of of sort of stories to pull from yeah uh, and the dceu 
uh, as it was known, you know, has always had a harder time finding its footing as as an extended universe. Um, well, and and I think the one of the big problems of this movie is that it assumes the audience is deep in on all mm-hmm. of these characters and all of this lore, but. And maybe it's just me because I only return to it whenever one of these movies comes out. But every time I see one of these movies, I feel like they're trying to reintroduce me again. Like, I, yeah. I never feel like like I have, even with the MCU, which I don't go back and watch those movies a lot. You know, after the first, I don't know, 10 or so of them, I, I, I get my fill. But, but you know, when I go see the new Thor, when I go see the new Guardians movie or whatever, mm-hmm. I feel like I, I feel the history of those characters and this movie universe and how it just keeps expanding. Whereas this, I'm always thinking about boardrooms of executives trying to figure out how they can and they just never do. So when when this movie is you know just assumes that we're we're there with Barry and his his problems and his his origin and all that I barely know the guy. Like yeah. he yeah. was just a side character in a couple movies. I we, we've never even seen his origin before until now. Yeah, I I This feels like a part 3 of of without two movies that preceded it. Well, no, it, okay. It feels like a few different things, right? Because it, it sort of pulls from all of the superhero tropes. Um, we have this time travel story. We have a superhero losing his powers story. We have team up story. We have, you know, like, It sort of hits all those beats. It definitely feels like a sequel to a movie that doesn't exist. Um, I do think there's chunks of the movie that work. Like, I do think it was more fun than the DCEU typically is. I appreciate that, at least at the beginning, we see him being a superhero. You know, there's this kind of, you know, this fun sequence where he has to, like, save people from a a hospital that's collapsing. I wanted more of that. I wanted more of him being the Flash. Um, I I do like initially when we go back in time, because I think um, Ezra Miller has a lot of chemistry with Ezra Miller. (laughs) Like, I I, I think the dual role uh, between them is is very fun. Um, and I, I do like seeing this pre pre power or, 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 you know, Barry without powers and then Barry with power. Like, I, I think that is a fun dynamic. Um, I had a hard time with a lot of that. I, I think, uh, I'm, I'm, I like the idea of a fun flash movie and I, I understand the, the tone that they're approaching this with, but you know, and Ezra Miller is a good actor, but really annoying through most of this movie, especially as younger Barry. It's all just ticks and mannerisms, and the comedy premises are kind of hacky and sitcommy. And I, I, 
didn't care for much of that. Um, it wasn't until they decided to do something with that that it becomes somewhat interesting. But yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I, uh, I think a lot of the acting and dialogue uh, is pretty bad throughout. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you on the the dialogue. I I don't know the the acting didn't bother me. I I liked I liked that sort of riff on Back to the Future. I thought it was fun. Um, I I do think two biggest problems for me with this movie, and they're pretty big problems, is all of there. I mean, there's way too many characters. Like there's they try to introduce all these side characters for Barry's life that could have been good, could have played out well, but the movie is just not interested in that. It's it's not interested in this, like, Back to the Future thing as anything more than a reference to Back to the Future. And I think the movie just would have been much more interesting. See, what's funny is you said it sort of started to all come together for you with the multiverse stuff. That's when it lost me. Um Cause like, I don't know. I didn't give a shit about Zod. Like, I feel like we've already seen and done all of this. Wasn't a super interesting threat to me. I I mean, I think what's more interesting is sort of where they go with the idea of fate and eventuality and stuff. Um, But I just was like, okay, it's more Zod, like, cool. I just felt like I didn't really get to know any of the other characters. And maybe that's why I liked the Barry on Barry thing is because that actually gave me some inkling of, you know, like, well, this is what Barry's like after they get powers. And, and you know, it's kind of that with great power comes great responsibility thing. Barry wants to be a hero, but they only know that because of the tragedy they've endured. It's, but again, this is all sort of thematic stuff that Spider-Verse did much better with the, the idea of like canon events and, and such. I thought Supergirl was pretty boring and bland. I know a lot of people online seem to like her. I just thought she was just sort of this boring brood machine, which I get. Yeah. Like, I, I get the why she is that way, but it's just the story gave her nothing to do except sort of grimace at the camera. I liked seeing Michael Keaton again on screen. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's still, he's got it, whatever it is. Um, And hearing the like Danny Elfman underscore is still very exciting. He's given Uh, some very unfortunate dialogue. um, Sure. But, you know, compared to that first action sequence uh, where we have Batfleck, Yes. And it, yeah, yeah. every time I see him on screen. He is phoning it the fuck in. Doing cosplay. It is. It's a, it, like, it feels so fucking half-assed to me. I agree with you completely. I have never liked Ben Affleck's take because it feels like there isn't a take. It just feels no. like he, he it feels like he doesn't want to be there. Nobody wants him to be there. Right. Um, so then when eventually when we see Michael Keaton again. He actually brought something to it. Yes. Yeah. And and it felt like this is Batman and maybe nostalgia goggles because that was, you know, my first Batman. But 
it looked natural. He it looked just, in the well, character. And, and the movie is so interested in, in filling in this world, uh, right? Like we see the Batcave again and we see the old uh, Batmobile and the, the score overtakes you. So like, yeah, it might just be nostalgia goggles for the both of us, but the movie is playing into that. It is the the joke about this being a Batman movie disguised as a Flash movie is kind of there. Um, uh, the other big problem I have with this movie is the just god awful CGI. It's yeah. so bad. It's so bad. There's no reason for the graphics and. Ashley was like, no, I think that's just because it's not done yet, you know, because she was like, it's not a final cut of the movie. And I was like, there's not that they can't improve that in two weeks, you know, like, no, nope, they sure did. That is what it is. <laughs> that it, yeah, it's it's bad. And it's it's bad. You know, I, I read a Andy, Andy Machete, who directed this, mm-hmm. um, he put out a statement saying that the graphics look the way they do. Because in the time orb or whatever that there's supposed to be sort of a distortion. It's like, okay, well, bro. But well, uh, that doesn't I, explain I, I, all the other places in the movie where the graphics are equally as bad. Like Exactly. So there, there's a sequence that I won't give away. Um, I, w- I won't give away certain things. But yeah, there's a sequence at the end and sort of this climax where he's he's in this sort of time bubble. Uh, uh, the time force and, and yeah, everything looks very uncanny Valley and weird. Um, uh, but exactly that doesn't hold up because the whole movie, you know, all of the battle with Zod just looks like a video, uh, like a, like a 2012 video game cutscene. you know, as much as I loved Michael Keaton's Batman, he has some really kind of cringy fight scenes that are just like relying on these like super zoom in close-up shots of his fist that just look like rubber like it just it's not a great looking movie no it oh yeah a lot of it is is really ugly and that in part because it's trying to fit within the world that Zack snyder created and I think ultimately this is going to – this is a sticking problem for me is that I don't like what he established. Yeah, I agree. He was the one who set up the the tonal and aesthetic uh, view of this movie universe and everybody has to color within those lines no matter what they want to bring to it. They have to be these murky – dirty looking movies and especially a movie like this that wants to be more upbeat just it does not totally match what we're seeing most of the time so maybe that's one of the reasons why Ezra Miller came off as so annoying to me Um, Mm -hmm. I also think it was bad writing and pretty poor direction It's, it's not a fun world to be in I went to the Best Western Hotel and you could pick up the old uh, like 60s and 70s Super Friends comics from Mm. the concierge desk. And I had a friend who worked at a Best Western or his his dad was a manager of one or something like that. And I got a bunch of them for free one summer. 
And, uh, you know, one of the first comics I read in sequence was, was Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. So I've always been big into the, the world of, of DC, but I, I just don't like this version of it, uh, aesthetically, mostly. I, I do think this movie, it, it doesn't have like the fucking sepia tones that Zach's, you know, uh, uh, it, it is pretty colorful. Um, you know, like sometimes, his- sometimes it's, it's inconsistent it, when he's going and visiting his family and the, or his dorm or whatever. It looks like a normal movie. But then every time they go into action movie mode, it's it's dusty, grimy. I agree with you. Like I the, the Zack Snyder. I mean, you know, we've raged about Zack Snyder on this podcast plenty. Um, <sighs> ultimately, I think the my big problem is that those. His movies should not have been this attempt to set up extended movie universe, right? The Christopher Nolan movies, I love I love some of them. <laughs> um, uh, but they would not work to set the tone for this sort of larger movie universe, right? Like they worked for his take on Batman. Right. And it always got off on the wrong foot with, you know, the establishing movie being Batman v Superman. It's this movie where they're at odds against each other. The movie's dark and ugly as fuck and, and terrible and just a bad movie. And then, you know, ever since then, it's just been this baggage attached to it that like, Okay, well, how much do I have to separate this from the Snyderverse or whatever? Right, and that's a problem with this, with uh, them being like the Flash. Don't we love the Flash? Eh, uh, you know, because of the uh, franchise as a whole has just been kind of moving in fits and starts. It's like some mm-hmm. movies are okay, but the less they have to do with the greater movie universe, the better they usually are. Yeah, which is why I, I think a big reason why one the first Wonder Woman stands out is yeah. because it's this period piece where she could kind of, you know, Patty Jenkins had a little bit more free reign because it didn't have to worry about fitting into this other narrative. Yeah, I mean, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit later in our movie news segment um, coming up, but... Uh, I don't think Andy Machete's a very good director. I, okay. I don't. I mean, I every movie I've seen by him has been at best mediocre or okay, and this one is probably his worst movie. See, I, I mean, and I, really only proves to me that he's not up to the task. So I, uh, I liked the It movies. Um, I do think It Chapter Two has problems. Though I think those are the only movies I've seen by him. Um, but I definitely agree with you when it comes to this. Like it 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 it, it just doesn't feel like a whole movie. It's like it, it just feels so like a patchwork quilt of stuff. I will say I enjoyed it more than a lot of the recent DC stuff. Um, like I did enjoy it more than uh, Shazam Fear of the Gods, which is super bland. Um, I enjoyed it more than Black Adam because um, at least 
at least this felt like it had some skin in the game. Like it felt like it had some stakes other than just just the most generic of power fantasy. Um, like it did feel like they were actually trying to say something. It's just something that you can get much better uh, in Spider-Verse. Yeah. I, I haven't seen um, a lot of them. I didn't watch either of the ones you mentioned, and I also did not see either of the Aquaman movies. Well, the um, second one is the second one isn't out yet. That comes out, I think, later this year. Oh, um, great! <laughs> the the first one, man, the first one's a mess, but it's kind of a fun mess. Again, if it wasn't sort of attached to this larger DC universe, which it kind of isn't, like I could see it having this campy cult following. In a few years' time, like it, it almost feels like a drag movie to me. Well, that's and that's how I felt about Wonder Woman 1984. Yeah, I, I actually think it's very comparable to that. Yeah, um, which I didn't think was a good movie, but it was kind of fun. Bad. Yeah, yeah. To me, this is this movie is also kind of in that camp. I I did enjoy it more than a, than a lot of the uh, uh, DC stuff. But it, man, it has such glaring flaws. And especially at a time when, like, superhero movies, like, if you're not good, kind of get the fuck out of the pool. Yeah. There's too many of you as it is. So if you're not doing something new, like, I, you're not doing anything. You're wasting my time. And yeah, in, good in to- this case, you're wasting two hours and a half of my time. And there's long stretches of this movie that's boring. I mean, I was like Guardians of the Galaxy three and then Spider-Verse to this was I felt it. I felt it. I'm not some like Marvel fanboy. Like, you know, there are people who think we're paid by Disney to shit on DC or whatever. Do people actually think that? Oh, that people on Twitter uh, think we are specifically not us specifically, but like, oh, we're getting my hopes up. Critics who always complain about these movies, they think they're being paid under the table by Disney. Um, we didn't love Ant-Man. No. I think this was worse. Like I said, I had enough fun with this. Like, we had a good time in the theater. I can't always say that about a DC movie because a lot of them, I feel like, are miserable slogs. And to me, the, this one didn't feel that. Like, I, I had some fun with it. But it's not great. I give it a C minus, and I feel like I'm being generous. Uh, I, I'll give it, I'll give it a B minus. It was between a, a C plus and a B minus. You're okay. making a face at me. I am. I, I didn't hate it. I, I had fun with it. I just, I think if the graphics had been better, it would have gone a long way for me. I think if the graphics were better and they were about twenty minutes shorter. It would have gone at least to a C plus. I can't promise anything more than that. Okay, let's cover some movie news. We didn't do it last week. Charlie Kaufman and Netflix are teaming up on the movie Orion and the Dark. It's an animated film by DreamWorks Animation, and it will premiere on Netflix. Okay, Charlie Kaufman... Um, like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? 
Yeah, being John Malkovich, Seneca okay. in New York. Did you see uh, he's he did that one like stop motion movie? Did you ever see that? I did not see it. Okay. Um. All right. I mean, I'm intrigued. Like, I I feel like animation makes sense. I mean, I think he's very much into surrealism. Yeah. And I think that he's a lot of his concepts are, you know, about creating visual metaphors. Um, So it makes sense that he would be interested in animation. Uh, I did not see the stop motion film, but I didn't either. I didn't either. But um, yeah, sure. Uh, I'm not a super big fan of Netflix at the moment. I've been threatening to cancel my account a a lot just because of the fuckery with the writer's strike. And um, uh, just the way they're kind of, you know, paywalling, sharing accounts and stuff is pissing like uh, on a corporate side, they're pissing me off. So I'm I'm not that gives me pause uh, that and there hasn't been a whole lot of Netflix uh, original movies that I've been super enthusiastic about. But I'm always interested to see what Charlie Kaufman's going to do next. Yeah, you know, it's kind of a crapshoot over there at Netflix. Like, sometimes they just release stuff, you know, like Extraction or whatever, or The Great mm-hmm. Man or what have you. Just any kind of generic thing they think will get clicks. Um, yeah, but, but every a once Charlie in a while. Kaufman animated movie isn't exactly, you know, like a Russo Brothers action blockbuster. Right, right. Every once in a while, they'll, they'll actually come together with somebody with a vision and, uh, you know, a semi-auteur or something like that who wants to put out some movies. Well, uh, most recently, um, you know, with Guillermo del Toro's fantastic version of Pinocchio, which was, you know, also animated. Yeah, yeah. So this is based on a book, uh, came out in 2014, that's... Uh, I guess Jacob Tremblay is going to be the boy Orion, an elementary schooler and a full-time Frady cat, unnerved by heights, spooked by domestic animals, and rendered nearly catatonic by the worst plight of all, the dark. Only one night, the dark, voiced by Paul Walter Hauser, has just about enough, so he takes Orion on a nocturnal adventure to show the boy there's nothing to fear but fear itself. It yeah, could be sure. cool. Yeah. Okay, the next story. After winning Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar for Women Talking, Deadline learns that Sarah Pauly is in talks to helm the live-action Bambi movie for, <laughs> for Disney. <laughs> I can sure... First of all, it's not live action. It's going to be CGI animals. So please stop calling it live action. Um, I get that there's not a better shorthand term uh, for realistically rendered animation, but it's still realistic animation. Yeah. Yeah. Please just stop calling them live action. What if? Shake you. Oh, if if it's live action, if it's an actual fucking deer and they homeward bound that shit. Then maybe. Oh, no. I was going to say a nursery school stage play kind of production where people are dressed as like 
a sure. rabbit and a skunk please with painted For the faces love of god give me something new um <laughs> i would i would be thrilled with that just for the balls of it. Um, but it, it guarantee that it will not yeah. be that interesting. Um, yeah, I don't give a shit. We do. No, yeah. This is Sarah, Sarah Polly's doing this one to fund her next project, whatever. Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully she's doing it to fund her next project and not just chewed into the Disney machine. Yeah. I mean, she's been working for a long time, you know, it's not like she's some, young hungry director looking for their their way up it's just expensive and hard to make movies especially if you're making personal work independent film which she mostly done her entire career so you know outside of her acting you do one for them you do one for you well hopefully this one will fund the next three or so projects that she would normally do uh because i like her um i Doubt she's going to really have much to do in the way of creating something interesting with this material. She's, yeah, but, she's the yeah. adult on set. She's the, you know. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, who knows? Who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe she will create something fantastic. But I, I think it's most likely that they just need someone there. Yeah, agreed. And lastly... Andy Machete is confirmed to direct Batman the Brave and the Bold. Because we don't have enough versions of Batman out there right now. Um, okay. I actually don't mind that they're doing this Batman Brave and the Bold thing, right? Because uh, from from what I've heard, um, it's meant to focus more on the Bat family. So we're actually going to get at least some version of Robin, um, which will be the first since Chris O'Donnell. Batman Brave and the Bold as a title has regularly been tonally a little a little campier, a little more um, comedy oriented. Honestly, I think if you had if you released Batman Forever now and called it Batman Brave and the Bold with all like pretend Batman Forever never existed and then all the comic book movies that do exist exist and then you released it now and called it Batman Brave and the Bold, it would be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Batman Brave and the Bold has always historically been sort of that campier version of Batman so all of that, I think, is kind of fun. And I like the idea that I, I like the idea that they're just like, no, this doesn't involve Robert Pattinson's Batman and um, Ben uh, Affleck. Yeah, it's just it's its own thing. It's a you know, I like that they're just sort of embracing uh, Elseworld with Batman. Uh, I think it's sort of the most interesting thing the DC universe is doing right now, like with Joker is a weird standalone its own thing. Okay, I get conceptually I'm kind of here for it. I'm not super into the fact that Andy Machete's directing it. Um uh because this the flash is so just sort of messy and again it just doesn't feel great. I liked the it movies, I'll say it again. Um but I I don't have a lot of faith in him as a director at this point. So 
Uh, well, you you of, already know how I feel. I I don't. I actively think he's just not very good, um, especially when it comes to tone. And if you're going to be doing something that's supposed to be campy, supposed to be silly, <sighs> I don't know. Like we could be heading into some Batman and Robin territory on accident. Um. Yeah. I. Yeah. I. I'm worried about that. I'm not I'm not super confident in it at this point. So I guess we'll see. Okay, let's go ahead and review the streaming homework, which is Pro- Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. Uh came out in 2017. We watched it on Tubi. This was your pick. Yeah. Um, I watched it on Canopy. Uh, which I will never stop singing the praises of because it allows me to watch these movies without ads. Okay, so Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman is about a psychologist at Harvard named William uh, Moulton Marston, uh, who is married and begins a, a polyamorous relationship with uh, him and his wife's mutual assistant. Uh, through their research, they are responsible for the creation of the polygraph machine, the lie detector test. Uh, and later on in his career, after he leaves academia, um, Professor Marston becomes uh, responsible for the creation of the comic book character Wonder Woman, which he uses to deliver his message of uh, psychological disc theory, which has to do with submission and domination within relationships and within life. And uh, uh, a lot of that, a lot of the comic sort of gets coded for his personal life in a polyamorous, um, uh, you know, bisexual Pink relationship. Yeah. Uh, so we we decided to talk about this movie in part in celebration of Pride Month. And I had never heard of this movie, even though it's not very old. Um, it kind of flew under my radar, especially considering who's in it. It's a pretty, you know, stacked cast. I mean. Yeah, we've got uh, um, Luke Evans, Rebecca Hall. Uh, Connie Britton, um, I, Oliver Platt, Oliver Platt, uh, Bella Heathcote, um, she plays Olive Byrne, uh, the assistant. I, I remember the marketing for this movie. Like I remember when it came out cause it was around the time, uh, it was not too long after Wonder Woman came out. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I think they both came out in 2017. Yeah, so I I kind of remember the marketing behind the movie, but I didn't really hear much about it afterwards. Like, I I didn't really hear much about it um, after its release. Though it is about the world of comic books, kind of. Yeah, Um, yeah, it's... it's The comic book stuff is pretty kind of peripheral. And uh, there's also this sort of subplot I didn't mention with Connie Britton plays... I can't remember what her official title is, but she's she's in charge of of like 
education materials when it comes to government something something and so a lot of the movie is sort of framed with this inquiry um into the content of the wonder woman comics yeah it's Um, like a legion of decency type of thing yeah um and there was a lot of that going on at the time so i had heard a little bit about the backstory of Wonder Woman and about how the lasso of truth and all of that stuff was coded for mm-hmm. uh, uh, domination. Well, and it's not just domination, but um, uh, yeah, the domination and kink in general, and um, and also, I, I think what's more surprising to me is that, like, I've heard the stories about how Wonder Woman is lesbian coded. Sure. Yeah. But I this movie makes it seem very implicit, like very I- intentional. Right. And and so those are, you know, those are things that I had only kind of heard a little bit about. And mm. it's there was so much being written about comic books around this time. Yeah. And that's why we have the comic book code um or you know it's essentially ignored now but for a while there yeah kind of like I mean, the Hayes code was for film mm-hmm. where there was a certain set of guidelines and rules that they had to follow and some of these characters got cleaned up during the 50s and 60s they were seen as sort of lurid subject matter uh being directed toward children um and it, so it was hard for me to really separate like well, were those things intentional or was that just, you know, fear mongering and propaganda, McCarthyist mm-hmm. propaganda at the time? Well, I, to- I think the, the problem is during that time, it all got lumped together. Right. So like. Right. So, you know, there were some people trying to actually have thematic content. And then there were other people that were just trying to sell the funny papers, man. And through history, it all kind of gets diluted into the same thing of uh, 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 especially, you know, from this conservative mindset of, oh, well, they're corrupting the youth. Right. And and at the time, also before the comic code, there were different kinds of comic books. You know, it wasn't like today where or uh, maybe it's kind of getting maybe more like today. Yeah. Where more people of all ages are reading comic books. But there was a point of time prior to when they were generally directed towards kids mm-hmm. when, yes, there were the superhero books, but you were just as likely to read those as you were a, like a Doc Savage book about like explorers in the jungle or romance books or horror. Romance, but Well, for, for the longest time uh, when comic books were a young art form, Romance books were actually the big sellers. Yeah. Um, Archie and and stuff like that. And they actually originally catered more to a female audience. It wasn't until Superman kind of unlocked the the superhero thing. um, Because before that, it was just kind of all – every kind of sort of genre serial you could think of. There was Western. There were horror comics. War. yeah. War comics, but but the biggest sellers were the romance books. Yeah, and if you you know if you go to an old shop that sells a lot of uh, used stuff, you can still see some of that 
And there was a point in time when, yes, pornography was being uh, serialized in comic books uh, or a version of it, you know. Yeah, wasn't until DeviantArt unlocked all that in all of us again. <laughs> right, and every, everyone got into, like, yiffy porn. Um, <laughs> but what was interesting about this story in terms of just the creation of Wonder Woman goes, which, again, is such really in a, a, a smaller aspect of the movie as a whole, but was how intentional a lot of that stuff was mm-hmm. and how – you know, I mean, they, they these people lived a life. You yeah. know, not not only did they create this long lasting legacy character that you know, like we said, the the film adaptation came out the same year this movie came out, mm-hmm. but the long awaited film adaptation. But um, also, these are the people who created the lie detector test. Now, never yeah, mind. The, Professor Mercer the, was a fucking OSS officer during World War Two. Right. Never mind that the actual science behind lie detector tests is well on shaky ground as it is. But nevertheless. But, but I also think that they they kind of established that in the movie, right? Like like it's not totally reliable, uh, uh, but it is a huge advancement where none had been before. Right. I mean, I mean, in in popular culture today, it, you're not likely to, you know, if you're on trial for murder, they're not going to strap you up to a lie detector test. Yeah, like, they're be- usually inadmissible. Yeah, it's it's it barely it, it's a elder science. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And, 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 you know, a lot of his uh, his him and his wife's psychological backgrounds are definitely kind of post Freud and young. Well, and they, they have this, they even have a conversation about Freud uh, early on in the movie. And, and, you know, they, there are some psych like talks about psychology at the time, um, which I think psychology has opened up much further than, than where they were at. But if you look at like a lot of these scholars of this time during sort of the modern era, when people were really starting to think about these things, there was a lot of these kind of ideas being bantied about. And a lot and a lot of people were trying to research or get their papers uh, published mm-hmm. fast, fast, fast and and uh, and break new ground in this stuff. And, yeah, there's a lot of junk science. That came out of that. But there's also some things that, you know, at least on a conceptual level, particularly when it comes to uh, the way we look at uh, pop psychology or the way that we we think about um, literary terms. Well, um, also, I, I think when it comes to sexuality, right, like it hadn't especially the the relationship between psychology and sexuality really been studied or or talked about a whole lot you know it was like, ju- it was just beginning to get that way and i was going I, like, to I say like, was this about the same time as kinsey right around then yes yeah and, so like and kinsey famously he he studied bees most of his life before he studied human sexuality so i'm just saying like i don't, i wouldn't say it's junk science i'd say it's early science sure yes 
Sure. But yeah. uh, a movie, a few movies came to mind while watching this. Kinsey being one of them, uh, the movie with Liam Neeson mm-hmm. and Laura Linney, um, the Bill Condon directed, uh, who was uh, another gay director, and uh, the Cronenberg film A Dangerous Method, which was specifically about Freud and Young, their relationship to a a research student that they were mm-hmm. both seeing and testing their arguments against. I think this is a better movie than that, but it it kind of lives in that world. And I also thought a little bit about that movie, The Theory of Everything. You know, did you see that one, Eddie Redmayne, uh, yeah, yeah, where yeah, he yeah. plays a young Stephen Hawking? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, 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 I mean, it also kind of reminded me at moments about um, uh, Tolkien, Right. Uh, sure. Just, yeah. Because it, you know, it has to do with this sort of Ivy League academia, especially near the beginning of the film. Yeah. Um, or that movie, Kill Your Idols, the where mm-hmm. talks about the beats when they meeting each other when they were young. Um, there, there's, there's aspects of that in there as well. But I think you know what it, what it's going for on a genre level, even though it's you know talking about all of this stuff, is it's mostly a romantic melodrama. Yes. Um, well, and play, yeah. playing it pretty straight uh, as far as that goes. I mean, it is, it's, it introduces these concepts, you know, these two, this husband and wife who have this, this open relationship uh, early on, who's uh, posturing for position with this assistant, who then enters into the thruple with them. Mm-hmm. And as the story goes, it seems like it's becoming more, it you doesn't know. ever treat any of those subjects with that type of blurredness. No, it, I mean, it's specifically like I, it grounds it, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, anytime any, any of the characters are like, Oh no, like this is this is not appropriate. The other ones are just like, fuck it, who cares? <laughs> like who cares? Um Right. There's an openness to their, you know, and a forward and I, thinking I think, to their approach to to this relationship. Well the, the the way the movie almost sets it up as as though their relationship kind of becomes this experiment, right? Obviously, the the inclusion of uh, what would then be considered a deviant lifestyle, mm-hmm. um, but sincerely believed in and held by the people who are living well, it, and, and and portrayed empathetically, right? Uh, and uh, showing you know that there's no harm that's mm-hmm. being done throughout any of this, any. You could see 150 ways where a different type of melodrama would use these same tropes as, oh, well, clearly, you know, this girl and the and the wife have their own thing, and now it's going to ice out Luke Evans' character, and that's going to create tension. And the movie, like, kind of cleverly, every time they – they lead you to believe that it's going to do something sort of dramatically 
familiar, mm-hmm. it sort of leans into it and says, but what if it didn't? What if it's fine? Yes. Yes. I mean, there is, you know, there's the outside looking in aspect of it where their neighbors are sort of whispering about them or no, no, know, no, they lose opportunities and, and uh, academic credits and things and, you know, sort of result in the well, getting in the comic books by way of needing to make money. I, I So I, th- I think something that the movie does well, right, is is the movie has a sort of us versus them philosophy of, uh, you know, our relationship, the three of us versus the rest of the world. And what I think it does well is it makes the audience feel like it's a part of that relationship, right? Like we, we are, we are the fourth wheel, uh, within this domestic situation. And I, I agree. It never, it never passes judgment on that situation. In fact, it it passes judgment on the people who pass judgment on that. Um, we're never sort of put into a position of feeling anything but empathy for them. My issue with the movie is that I feel like it's, it's biting off so fucking much uh, because it's trying to be it's trying to be this romantic melodrama and it's also trying to be this biography movie. And I, I feel like narratively those are kind of always sort of butting up against each other because every time you would get sort of the typical like biography beat, it switches into melodrama mode. And, and because of that, and just because their lives, there's so much story I I feel like there is sort of a a, a repetition here um, that occasionally comes across slightly misogynistic. Hmm. In what way? So the movie and and I I feel like this might be the issue of of just the way the subject matter is adapted. Right. The movie's about this thruple, but really it feels like. A lesbian romance between Rebecca Hall and yeah, it, it feels like and the, Olive, whatever the real was. romantic core of this movie is between romantic Rebecca Hall and Bella Heathcote, uh, and Luke Evans as Professor Marston. He has sort of this observational tone to the movie. Um, uh, which again, that's kind of where I feel like the, the relationship starts to feel like a science experiment. Um, but the two women are the ones who are like sort of emotionally invested. And I do think the movie goes to great pains to not make it feel weird, but there are moments where it's very much like these two women are being too emotional and the man has to sort of talk them into it again uh uh even though they love each other he is sort of the always sort of cast as the reasonable one in a way that occasionally makes me feel a little uncomfortable there there are moments where i i think that power dynamic needed to shift 
a little bit. Um, oh, I think the power dynamic is is uh, pretty well shared between him and Rebecca Hall. I mean, Rebecca Hall is nobody's fool in this movie. And no, she's but she, often but the smartest one always, in the room. No, but she is always the one saying we can't do this. Uh, you know, we, this can't happen. The world won't let us live this way. I just think that maybe that point of view should have shifted a little bit throughout to, to make it not feel, I don't know. There were moments where I, I felt a little bit like, like he was a little culty. It, it's difficult to do a movie like this yeah. and have it not feel where where he it's some like strange sister wives situation or yes exactly or like a um harem or something and the movie does not want you to feel that way and i i think that is why it feels i i feel more of the romance between rebecca hall and uh uh bella because i feel like they build that more to avoid that situation right like we don't want it to feel like he's exploiting them but but because all of this sort of pressure the societal pressure falls on the wife uh, falls on elizabeth marston there are times when it feels a little manipulative and i don't think the movie intends that no i don't think so i don't i think that the love that they have is fairly unique between all three of them. I think the love I agree. between him and his wife is, is, is very different. And they, the way they communicate to each other, the way that they, I actually, I actually feel like they're more of a cerebral kind of relationship. Whereas Rebecca Hall and Bella is more of a, an emotional relationship, whereas Luke Evans and Bella is more of a physical relationship. And I think that the that the love that they they share as a three, I, I I felt more problems with what you're talking about until they start having kids together, like all three uh, yes. of them. And I it, then I realized like, oh no, this is about a family. Yes, I I agree with you, and and I again I think the movie goes to great lengths to not make you feel this way, but there's literally a moment where he says like you know between the two of you you're the perfect woman, that's what I'm talking about with this sort of like underlying, maybe not even intentional misogyny, like it oh it takes two women. To complete this relationship, but just the one man. Like I, I, I just felt a little bit of that throughout. I, I, I think that his character is kind of written to be that way. I think he's supposed to be he's a sort of colder, a modern, a little more analytical. Uh, yeah, more modern uh, male archetype at that time, which is you know he's all business, suit and tie. He has to hold court wherever he is. And that's why mm-hmm. I think Rebecca Hall is so great, is she is his equal in that. Um, well, at a time when that would not have been as common to see. Oh, absolutely. She's not demure like she, at all. She, she's uh, not a, even his equal, but, you know, probably his superior as far as intelligence and 
And, you know, but due to the fact that she's a woman, you know, gets undercut at every opportunity that he would have had. Right. And I think that the movie is just as his experiments were explicating. I think the movie in a lot of ways is about power dynamics. Yes. And and, and the power dynamics within relationships. And and I don't think that it's um, ever trying to make you feel like any of them are exploitative. Even if he's putting on a show or putting on a face of being the head of the household, just mm-hmm. because societally that's how he feels like he should present himself, I think ultimately he knows that he is kind of the third wheel of that relationship. And, you know, uh, even after he's gone, they lived. Bella's character and Rebecca Hall's character lived many years later. Mm-hmm. Um, so what well, it could have could have been that you know that that there was it was more of a lesbian relationship with a man involved, um, or maybe yeah, I mean that's what it, was that's what it felt like. But again, it at I, I think that's what I'm talking about though. Like it it felt like it was a lesbian relationship with a a man who was part of it but there were so many times where it felt like he had this sort of power i don't know it it was interesting it was interesting the right. way those- I, I think the i think his role in that is that he he sort of acts as the the societal gatekeeper sure. as as the role of the male and slowly as he's letting his guard down He's opening up more and more doors for them to pass through. Uh, well, and I, it, I think what frustrated me is we don't really see him letting his guard down because his his guard is sort of always down. I, I, I felt like that dynamic always sort of fell on Rebecca Hall, who was always sort of withholding and and unapproving, whereas the other two were like, you know. Luke Evans was like, nah, we can fucking do this. And and uh, Olivia was always sort of like, I want to do this, but you keep pushing me away. Like, I, I there were maybe one too many scenes of the, the two women breaking up and then him bringing them back together that, you know what I mean? Like, the, there was just, there was a lot of that, which I, I get. Well, I, th- I think that is the the dramatic tension of the movie i think sure. that is the uh the melodrama aspect of it Dang. this yearning the, the this melodrama. wanting this this uh untamed heart kind of thing the the melodrama sometimes seems at odds with the bio, biographical aspects of it, it, like it just, one thing i think would help uh, as yeah. far as that goes is you know generally speaking I don't love framing devices as interviews where the character says, well, you see that scene you just saw, what that means is blah, 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 blah. Especially at the beginning. There's a lot of explaining. Right. I'd much rather just see the characters do the thing Mm -hmm. than try and give us the context that we've, that I guess they feel we need. And unfortunately, the framing device is what glues their relationship to the comic book stuff the most. 
And it's yeah. a, it is a little hard to fit all of that into one movie, especially I, if you want to play this will-you-won't-you game for as long as they do. And maybe yeah, it does I, go I, I on a little too my, long. I think that's my issue with it as a movie is all of the, all of the stuff with Wonder Woman, it, it felt like they needed to add more of that in to – to sort of sell it, right? Like, oh, this is the origin sure. of Wonder Woman. Because the world of comic books at that time is so rich, there's a 100,000 stories you could tell within that world. And then there's also the story of all the sexual dynamics, which this movie's more interested in, and that's fine. But it, it, it just feels like they're trying to do a little bit too much with all of that. Like, if it's about this, this relationship, that's great. I... Don't I didn't need as much of the comic book stuff or I well, needed more of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think they they found that there's close of balance as I think they could with that without going too far one of the way or the other. I know the the director, um, Angela Robinson, uh, I watched some interviews with her after I watched the movie when she was doing uh, promotion for it and. She is a big Wonder Woman fan, okay. and um, the the way that she came to this story was through a Wonder Woman history book, and it just covered the Marston's relationship in like one chapter, and she's like, "Wait, what the fuck?" <laughs> <laughs> and it's like that, so she went all in on trying to tell their story because. Yeah, and she's a uh, a big mover and shaker in the world of uh, gay and lesbian cinema. She she made the cult action comedy Debs. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's about a, a bunch of uh, women in schoolgirl uniforms who, uh, you know, are an elite squad of assassins. Sounds fun. And... She also directed a lot of episodes of The L Word and True Blood. And she's, I know, a major feature in uh, Los Angeles's Outfest and stuff like that. So I 100%, you know, given all that context, know why she wanted to tell the story and can see her perspective. I in mean, it. it's interesting as fuck. Like, the, the, yeah. the story is interesting. I just, I almost. It's one of those things where I just felt like there was so much content. There was so much stuff that this is like this could have been, you know, like a, a mini series. It uh, could have. And in another world, it probably would have been. And, um, and I, I just think that might have served it better to sort of fit everything that they're trying to fit in. Now, that being said, I mean, I enjoyed the movie and I, I think it's interesting as hell and and i think the way it presents a polyamoric relationship is probably as uncynical as as i've seen in a movie right and that's hard yeah. to do i mean without that without turning it into a story about jealousy and cheating and and all of that stuff like absolutely you know essentially uh, querying that experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's that's what I enjoyed about it, and, and why I thought how she kind of took the genre of the melodrama and flipped it on its head, 
in a similar way to like how uh, Todd Haynes did with the movie uh, Far From Heaven. Um, all of that movie is like directly referencing Douglas Sirk. This movie's more just kind of having fun in the time period and, you know, and then also sort of that obsession with that era of academia and mm-hmm. and and uh, science and Which, what I mean, I, I all of those movies that we mentioned earlier, like I there's just this comfort for me, academia and men in vests, like drinking whiskey and sure. Like, you, you know that uh, kind of madman kind of thing. Yeah, that sort of yeah. post-war um, aesthetic that I'm always going to be into just for that. And I also genuinely think the performances by the three leads are great. I do think that Luke Evans is the squeakiest wheel of on the tricycle here. Sure, but I also think he's the, as far as a character goes, the sure. Thinnest. Yeah. I, I just think it's, you know, between him and Rebecca Hall, she's acting him off screen every scene they're together. He's doing a lot of, like, cigarette acting, whereas she, like, fully embodies that character. And and and, um, and I think that the, the relationship, the tension, sexual and otherwise, that she builds with uh, the other female lead is... Uh, a lot more believable from them too than it mm-hmm. is from Luke Evans to her and them together. And I, I understand the dynamic they're trying to build, but I don't know. Maybe I've just never been the biggest Luke Evans fan. Like oh, every, every time I, I see Luke him, Evans. really? Every time yeah. I see him, I'm, I'm sort of nonplussed. I'm like, he's at best sort of like this, like where he'll do, but I could think of a thousand other actors who could, step into this role and and give it more juice um, i think i disagree with you i i pretty much like worst, him and everything i've seen him in or at worst it's dracula untold i have not seen dracula untold <laughs> he's the x factor that makes me kind of interested in it it's better left untold i <laughs> <laughs> so i've heard within this throuple there is definitely more charge between the two women and maybe that is an acting thing, but it's it's a man that is a hard it's a hard balance to achieve in life and in movies and right. Well, I mean, I I think especially when you're screen testing and you're doing sure. scenes, you know, the these fast scenes of dialogue and back and forths between him and Rebecca Hall, it would be hard to find somebody who could. Who could meet her tit for tat? Well, she's kind of next level in this too. Like, I, I yeah, I, effortless. But yeah. with him, I don't know. I feel like his costuming is doing most of the acting. It's a little unfair, but I I get what you're saying. I I I guess my takeaway from this movie is it's a really fucking interesting story. Yes, and and I'm glad it was told. I think that narratively, there's a few things that kind of bog it down. And I think they mostly have to do with the comic book stuff, Uh, specifically with this sort of, like you said, the framing device just doesn't really need to be there. And and I think some of the stuff with like the moral burning of the Wonder Woman books and stuff would hit harder uh, if 
if that wasn't sort of set up from the beginning. Um, so I, I think narratively there's some structural issues, but the story is doing so much more progressively that it's it's sort of worth those issues. Yeah, I recommend it. I was totally entertained by it, and it was just sort of like, how did this miss me? Like, this movie is totally up my alley, but I hadn't even heard of it, and I would suspect a lot of people haven't. Um, okay, so uh, next week we should have a guest, and he has assigned us the movie Flea, which is a documentary, uh, an animated documentary that's on Hulu. It came out in 2021, I believe. And if anybody has anything to say about anything that we've talked about in this review or, or this episode or previous, you can contact us at our email, uh, mcguffinpod at gmail.com. We're also reachable on Instagram and Twitter at mcguffinpod. Uh, you can also find us on Letterboxd and on uh, TikTok. We have a TikTok now. Uh, soon we should have video up on YouTube. So just uh, look up MacGuffin Pod, all one word, on any of those apps, and you should be able to find something. Um, be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on whichever podcast app you use to listen to us, iTunes or Spotify specifically. But uh, if you use something else, you can also rate us there. Uh, you can check me out at my Instagram and Twitter at BC Cassidy. And you can read the reviews I do for the Idaho State Journal by looking up Idaho State Journal movie reviews. And be sure to read the other reviews and articles by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at their landing site, mcguff.in, where you can also find the archives for the podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, I also perform um, at Mockingbird Improv with the show Improv vs. Stand-Up. You can follow both of those on Instagram as well for uh, updates into shows and calendars and workshops and classes and all that business. And that'll be the end of the episode. When are you going to stop justifying the whims of your cock with science? Bye.